your friend Anthony Skinner, producer of Typology. Anthony, how's it going this week, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ian? I'm excited. It is another episode of Typology, the podcast on which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. Yes, it is. And we've got some great news to share with everybody. Can you I tell can. us? I sure can. This, I think it was this week or... A couple of weeks ago, because now we're... A couple we're, weeks we're, ago. Yeah, we're kind of over it now. Okay, now. Remember, we only started last July. Yeah. And this is what now? It's March, yep. right? Roughly. Yep. And we are now well over a million downloads. <laughs> yes, over one million downloads for Typology Podcast in less than a year. Ian, my friend, congratulations. Yeah. I know, man. It's like... That's uh, awesome. Who, who'd have thunk? Man. Who'd have thunk? So I guess the question would be... Why are so many people listening and downloading typology? Well, part of it is, is that I'm an insanely attractive and scintillating conversationalist. Even though they can't see me, they sense my handsome person on the other end of the microphone. Agreed. You think that's it? Long before we were on the air, I was voluntarily having conversations <laughs> with you. So, <laughs> so yeah, on some level, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> No, okay, so here's the deal. No, it's not because I'm a scintillating conversation. It's not because I'm I'm an, I'm a particularly handsome human being. In fact, if anything, I am generously plain. But um, I would say I think that people in general, when they get around the Enneagram, when they get around any system that helps them understand themselves, mm. they light up. You know what I mean? Yeah. People want to grow. I think human beings fundamentally want to grow, to understand themselves, you know, what do we hear all the time from people? You know, oh my gosh, they learn the Enneagram and they go, oh my gosh, this explains so much. Mm. You know, like it, it explains my mother, it right. explains why this always happens in relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I don't know. I think it, 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 it turns a light on, it opens a door in people's hearts and lives and, and they think, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Other people like me, similar struggles. I got a growth path, I got a way to grow. I'm just grateful to have a system that, that helps me on the journey. Well, everywhere that I go, I'm hearing people having conversations about the Enneagram and people are having conversations about your book. And that's cool. Yeah. I, I know. It's yeah. like, it's like, who knew? Who'd right. have thunk? I never knew that it, it was one of those that. synchronicity. You were like right in the right place in the right time with moving forward with this thing. And well, may it happen again. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say the book and now this show typology and I'm, proud and uh, happy to be a part of it with you. I think well, it's awesome. Glad to have you a part of it. That's for sure. So let's talk about today's show. Well, you know, uh, you know, that really is a good sort of feathering into who mm. our guest is today. Um, he's a psychologist uh, and a professor. Uh, and uh, he is one of the most interesting, thoughtful people I know, mm. as is his wife, who is on the show today at, as well. Um, I first met Richard Beck at a conference, and we'll, he and I talk about it during the show, but about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and um, he heard about the Enneagram when he's there. He's a psychologist. He heard about it because I had done a, a workshop the day before he arrived for okay. a bunch of people. And, you know, he's a research academic psychologist, right? So he's like, he's like a serious high-level academic dude, right. right? And so he hears about this sort of 
unvalidated, you know, mm. psychological instrument called the Enneagram. Uh, and, you know, he, just, he, he arched his eyebrows at me like, seriously, man? Like, mm-hmm. this is kind of goofy, right? A little bit of a skeptic, right? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear on the show that he ends up in a very different place mm. from, from where he started with us. Anyway, Richard Beck, he's an author. He wrote a wonderful book called Unclean, Meditations on Purity, Hospitality, and Mortality. A couple of other books, too, The Authenticity of Faith, The Varieties and Illusions of Religious Experiences, The Slavery of Death, which is the talk he gave when I heard him uh, maybe 18 months ago in Florida at this conference, Uh, and, and a number of other books. He's a very cool human being, very thoughtful, and I can't wait for you to hear his thoughts about the Enneagram and the thoughts of his wife a year and a half after they uh, were first introduced to it. So, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's All right, folks, it. let's get to my conversation with Dr. Richard Beck. Dr. Richard Beck, my friend, welcome to Typology. Excited to be here. Man, and look, I'm I'm looking at you on my screen. I'm looking at your wonderful wife, Jana, sitting in the background. I get two Becks for one. This is fantastic. <laughs> hey there. <laughs> she's all, yeah, she's she's always, I, I, I always like to say everything's better with Jana. So I'm glad she's here. Oh, man. Well, I am. Um, been looking forward to this conversation for a long time because you and I spent, or actually all of us spent three, maybe four days together in Florida last year uh, at a conference called Telemachus, um, small boutique conference for, I guess, high trajectory leaders. Um, And uh, your presentation was so extraordinary, but more importantly, Jana was extraordinary. And, uh, and I and and I have to say, just the time offline together with you was a really it was a treat, you know. It was a it was a great hang. So oh, it was really special for us as well. It was. Yeah. So anyway, I've been looking forward to having you on, and uh, I've already given people, um, you know, sort of a praises of your CV, uh, and so they all know, you know, your your coolness, your intel, your 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 background and I wanted so I want to jump in on a couple of a couple of things but and but actually before I do I want to ask you what are you so what are you excited about these days because I haven't talked to you actually in months like what what are you excited about what are you doing well I, I think we were talking this before we got on the show is that yeah I'm writing a book right now with Fortress Press called The Gospel According to Johnny Cash and so I think that's the most exciting thing I've been writing for quite some time. So I've been wanting to do a project like that. And so, yeah, I'm deep in a Johnny Cash right now. Awesome. What's your favorite Johnny Cash song? Um, Folsom Prison Blues. Uh, really? Yeah, just because that line, there, there's that line, you know, that line in the verse, right? I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And there's just something about his juxtaposition of like light and darkness, saints and sinners. Um, right. And my favorite album is at, is uh, obviously at Folsom Prison because I do prison ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just those songs in the prison songs are kind of my favorite part uh, of his uh, discography. Yeah, he um, obviously we're, we're in Nashville. So you're, you're talking about one of our greatest saints, you know, uh, his. Uh, He's still humid in the atmosphere here. I mean, you know, he his his fingerprint is just all over Nashville, and you know, he haunts the Ryman Auditorium. Man, he he's he's all here. 
Yeah, there's a, and there's a really good museum that's that's uh, oh. in town oh. there. That's just fantastic. Well, you actually, I'm sorry to say, if you didn't see it, but at the Country Music Hall of Fame for about the last two years, there was an exhibition called on Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash, and it was one of the fine finest curated. Um, sort of exhibitions uh, that I've, I've ever seen. It was fantastic. It was multiple floors about their relationship and about their admiration for each other. And uh, I mean, just hearing Johnny Cash speak with such reverence about Bob Dylan and his contribution, I mean, to country music. He thought that Bob Dylan was a country country music player. Oh, yeah. I think Dylan had a couple albums after he met Johnny Cash, uh, recorded out of Nashville, kind of had a country flavor to him as well. Yeah, that's a fascinating relationship. Yeah, actually, my, my my two favorite Bob Dylan records are Nashville Skyline, and the other one would probably well, might be Blood on the Tracks or Desire. It kind of like would be sort of that mid seventies Dylan was my 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 love. And I boy, when you hear him and and Johnny Cash singing "Girl of North Country," I mean that that then they're so out of tune by the end. But you're like, that's the coolest out of tune I've ever heard. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that is so legit that I just want to lay down and die. Now, what hey, what do you think of Dylan's Christian phase? You know, I mean, I actually, I think the record uh, "Slow Train" um, was unbelievably great. I love it too. I, yeah. I, I know, I know that's a controversial period for Dylan fans, but obviously, I, I really like that album a great deal. So here's here's how I come down on that. Like, I one time got invited to speak at the Gloria and Bill Gaither's uh, Family Fest. I guess it was seven thousand people. I mean, an Episcopal priest in front of seven thousand Gaither fans, right? <laughs> Uh, and so now Southern gospel music is not my thing. Right. Right. Uh, and so, but I got three days of it. Um, and I got to tell you something. I know great musicianship and I know great, uh, you know, people who really understand a tradition and friggin' nail it. And, uh, that that was them. I mean, they they those people are scary great. Not my thing, but scary great. Now, if you're somebody out there, in my opinion, and you hear a Dylan record and you can't get over the fact that it's quote unquote Christian in orientation, and you can't hear the brilliance of the songs, that's your problem. That's on you. Yeah, <laughs> that's your negative bias uh, blinding you to what is you know just by virtue of craft should just show you is excellent. Totally, I agree. I agree. So there's that. Okay, so I uh, I laughed, uh, and I want to circle back to something you and Janice said at the at the beginning of the show. But I I I was talking to our mutual friend Josh Graves, uh, and I said, uh, "Hey, you know, I um, my my assistant asked Richard what what he thinks his enneagram type is. He says, "Why, man? You said that I haven't spent a lot of time. You know, I haven't been immersed in it. You know, and but you wrote down five with four. Am I correct? That's correct. Five five okay. wing four. Okay, and so." Josh scoffed. <laughs> he scoffed. <laughs> he scoffed at you. He no. He said uh, he had another. He he thought, man, I would have pegged him as blank. And I'm not gonna tell you what he said yet. Okay. Because you know we don't. We're not supposed to type anybody else. But I will for the sake of the show. Uh, go at it, and we'll talk more about five with four. Janet, you said something interesting that after the after Telemachus, after this conference we were at together, you, you took a a, a cup, copy of the book home, and then it, it's had some. You just for the, I didn't know this, but you, you just told me a few minutes ago that it had some ripple effect or, or uh, on on your lives together. Yes, I think I said it rocked my world. I think was exactly what I said. Wow. Uh, yes. And why? Why? Tell me why the enneagram has had that effect. Well, um, I. I looked at the book and was completely transfixed when 
I started seeing uh, the explanation of the two, which mm-hmm. is what I ultimately decided that I am. And um, it, it exposed me in a way that felt very uncomfortable. And I was really upset for a while when I discovered um, some of the things that it was um, perhaps implying about what, what makes me do what I do. And I didn't even believe it for a while. I, I was like, well, I'm part of this, but this some of this I just know. But I kept coming back to it. Uh, a couple of weeks later I looked, and I was like, well, maybe. And then two weeks after that I came back again, and by the third time I looked at it, I was crushed. I was absolutely mm. devastated because I saw myself through and through. And being open with myself about um, exploring some of those things that were hard for me to see has put me on a path of closeness to God that I have never even known was possible. And so mm. I'm, that's when I say rocked my world. Um, it's, it has put me in touch with uh, sin in my life um, and uh, exposed it as such. And that's pretty world rocking. Mm-hmm. And it's also um, helped me be aware of other people in a way that I have not been before. And it's, it's brought compassion um, in some of my relationships that needed it. And it has um, helped me see maybe my contribution to my workplace and to my family and to my church and, and places that I, um, that I bring value um, because of the uniqueness of, of my offerings. Um, whereas before, maybe I didn't see them as unique. I just thought everybody was like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I found out that everyone isn't and that I do have a unique place and, and bring um, uh, joy and light um, in a way that, that is valuable. Um, and so that's been fun, too. Oh, that's cool. So now, Richard, I remember when we were first together uh, in, in Florida, and here you are, you're a psychologist, you're a theologian, you're an academic, so you're, you're a practitioner and beyond, you know. Um, I remember that I, I remember your your we, we sat across from each other at dinner and and as any good you were skeptical you know you were a little bit like okay this Enneagram thing you know I don't know you know you're like I just remember and and uh, there was a little bit of and I don't take that personally that's fine I don't you know it's not I didn't write it up but what how has that changed or are you do you still have significant reservations about because um, I know you've got a background in psychometrics, don't you? Correct. Yeah. What? Yeah. I'm an experimental psychologist. Okay. I'm screwed. Okay. So <laughs> I just want to know if anything's changed. Well, yeah, I think there there is amongst my kind of professional people who, you know, specialize in personality theory and personality assessments and have backgrounds in that, that whenever we see anything kind of emerging kind of outside of our kind of scientific world that there's always that kind of initial knee-jerk reaction uh, to those things. And so so I think that's where that was coming from. But seeing the effect of the Enneagram in Jana's life, like she shared, and how it's been such a, a beautiful thing for her, and how it's been that way for people at our church, and I've seen it just used profoundly in spiritual direction. I mean, there are these testimonies that I run into. So in my early days of skepticism, when the Enneagram was just kind of making its first appearance on the horizon, you kept on hearing these stories where people would, like Janice, they would read something, encounter a type, and they would just feel absolutely nailed. I've, I've had people said that they've read your book and they read the description and they began to weep. And because of a because of something, maybe a confrontation like Jana described, 
but I think more profoundly a sense of feeling known, like like this was them that that some somehow they they a, a revelation had occurred for them, and then that that profound sense of being known so well in this uh, typology that those testimonies, as they build up over time, are really hard to dismiss. And I think if you're a good scientist, you're always going to be open to human experience because that's data. Those narratives, those stories, those almost conversion experiences, um, mystical experiences, that's data, right? That's, some, that's something happening out there. And so just the effect of the Enneagram in our family and in our marriage and in the testimonies of friends and loved ones has, has opened me up to it. So, yeah, so I've gone on and taken the test and try to, try to see myself in it as well. And um, I think being a five makes me skeptical, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of inherent in that, the, 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 the data orientation, the, the looking for explanations? I mean, I think there's a, a bent to kind of an analytical mind that makes us kind of pick apart things. And that might be a problem with being a five, overly analytical. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, yeah, I think I've, I've been on my own journey with it too. So more open, definitely so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I... I, one of the things I have wrestled with with the with the with the enneagram because I obviously I don't have a PhD I, mean, I have a master's in, in counseling psychology but not a I'm not a I don't have a a research background right just that's not my 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 background I don't have that extra time and I um I don't actually I wonder if the enneagram is even it qualifies as a I mean I never present it as a psychometric I don't even present it as a psychological necessarily tool I would actually say it's if I could dare say something like this uh, without sounding pretentious, is a little bit more like sacred psychology or folk psychology. I'm not even sure what we would call it, you know, or perennial wisdom. Is it just a collection of sort of wisdom, you know? Uh, I don't know. What do you, I mean, I, it's not a metric. There's no... Yeah, there's no like... I mean, you could though. I mean, I've been, you know, comparing the Enneagram to kind of the dominant personality paradigm in psychology and so i don't know if you've talked a lot about the big five personality traits um, on your podcast but when psychologists think about personality and psychometrics they're usually talking about what's called the big five uh, mm-hmm. traits and yep. those are openness to experience conscientiousness agreeableness uh, neuroticism and extroversion mm-hmm. and so psychologists typically don't work with types they, they kind of look at these traits that can vary in intensity and they combine in unique ways to create a kind of a singular, unique individual. Um, but when you look at the Enneagram uh, types, you do see these traits mixing in various ways. So like obviously Jana is a two, she's a helper. And so she would be high in a big five, you know, trait is in a agreeableness, right? She's very kind, warm, um, also high in conscientiousness, um, artists like fives and fours and you know those are going to be higher on like openness to experience and so you can see you can all i have to say is you can see a way you can bring a psychometric perspective into the typology if anybody cared to do that and i'm curious actually about that about um um, and i've I've poked around the literature to see if anybody from a kind of more psychometric background has actually studied the, the enneagram in that way i don't think they have but i really think it's possible yeah i agree and i actually uh, I think, of course, the problem with any self-report assessments, or you know, as you know, are the validity and reliability. It, you know, those dang things assume that everybody's you know self-aware enough to answer accurately, and and you know, so many of them are poorly constructed um, in terms of you know how questions are posed or, or directed, and 
So it's a little bit of a hit and miss. I mean, what's the, I mean, even on the, let's forget Myers-Briggs because, you know, everybody rolls their eyes. Anybody who's got a research background rolls their eyes when they talk about Myers-Briggs. But let's talk about, you know, uh, the the big five or let's say an MMPI, for example. I mean, what's the, what's the rate of, like in terms of reliability, validity, like scoring of, of like how accurate a measure of personality uh, are, are, are those? I mean, do you, is there an actual number we can put to it? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, when you talk about reliability and validity, and this is really getting in the weeds, but all, so I would just say simply, yeah, those things have demonstrated pretty consistent reliability. And by that, we, by that we mean simply that when people take the test, they, they tend to replicate the results, that those scores tend to be sturdy and stable over time. So people aren't, you know, changing personalities one day to the next. So they're stable. And they're valid in the sense that they tend to correlate with things they should be correlated with fairly consistently. And so they, all I have to say is there does seem to be some sort of stability about the assessment itself. But that said, there's a lot of controversy about the Big Five. We debate right now. There's a big debate whether or not it should be the Big Six. What's the, what's the sixth one? Honesty and humility. But those are character issues. Aren't those character traits versus personality traits? That's exactly, you know, that's exactly right. I think that's um, one of the debates is the degree to which these are personality traits versus virtue or character. And so, yeah, there's a debate about adding the sixth. And then that would change the big five to what's called the Hexaco model. If anybody wants to Google that. <laughs> oh, it's getting better. Sounds like an oil company. Exactly. And But there's also just a lot of controversy about trait theory as it is about whether or not these things are are stable over time or not. And so that's a whole other critique from social psychology about whether yes. or not these types or these traits are are actually as durable as we think they are because if you get people in certain situations where the pressures are changed, uh, people can behave very differently than what they would consider their baseline or the default. And, and so um, – yeah, you can maybe demonstrate psychometric stability, but whether or not these traits are real or not is still a hotly contested issue, yeah. depending on where you land in psychology. Yeah, I mean, I, that's been my experience from reading. Of course, is it Michelle? Who was it who, who was the fellow who actually made the huge critique that rocked the world of personality theory that, you know, basically uh, that personality traits are only stable because people are situationally usually stuck in the same place of course they're always going to act the same way you know what i mean it's like so but if you move them to a war zone then suddenly you know where all the values may change where everything changes and they adapt i mean they're gonna their personality is going to change pretty dang dramatic oh yeah like two of the famous studies in psychology like the stanford prison experiment where a simulated prison changed the behavior of the guards lots of your Listeners will know that study where the guards became quickly sadistic. Um, the Milgram obedience study where normal people were asked to administer electric shocks to, mm-hmm. to people and simulating conformity to obedience to authority. And um, th- those studies are still kind of out there in our minds as kind of like how human persons, if they're put in hierarchical power relations, can really, really change dramatically. And the dark side starts coming out. And so it go- to back to your point – is what is the relationship between personality and virtue? Yes, that's a big one. And and um, because we might be our type, we might have our certain personality, and but does that tell us what kind of human being we are? Okay, so this is huge for our folks because I, you know, um, I get calls from companies. I speak at corporations from time to time now, and 
you know, somebody like last week, somebody called me, they want to make an HR decision and they, they, they're enamored with the Enneagram because I had gone there and taught their company for some teams and had been very helpful in people's understanding with each, of each other and relationships. And, and I said, don't do it. I said, that's a big mistake. I said, you know, this is a, first of all, <laughs> I think it's unethical. Uh, you, you really, the first thing you ought to check out is character. That's the most important thing when you're trying to hire somebody or decide where to let them go is character. Second is competencies. Third would be charisma, which sort of is social uh, intelligence or emotional intelligence, let's say. And then maybe if you want personality as a data point, but I said, fine. But but to say I need to hire a six is stupid because what if you hire a six and they're frauds? Like what if they're people who are sixes who also happen to have no character? Right. (laughs) There's a there's a theory. There's a personality trait theory in psychology called the dark triad. Have you ever heard of the dark triad? No, no. So it's this. So it's it's this constellation of three personality traits that that are combined to kind of create a dark personality that, you know, an ethical person. Um, And they are narcissism, obviously, kind of self-absorption. The other one is psychopathy, Mm -hmm. which is a lack of empathy you know, identification with the suffering or the feelings of others. And the third one is uh, what's called Machiavellianism. Yes. And this is a kind of a very strategic, uh, manipulative kind of person, uses people toward their own ends. And so those three, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy are considered to be kind of the dark triad. And, And yeah, those are, those are more moral issues, but they do have psychological substrates to them all, like, like an inability to be, have a sympathetic stress reaction to the suffering of other people's like we are wired a little bit differently in those in those regards so so fascinating you know some people try to draw a line and i'm going to drill down in a minute to uh you know personal lives here and and all that stuff because that's really where i want to get at is is uh hearing you guys talk about types and, and and your experience and and all that but i i i do hear uh clinicians sometimes who like the enneagram and find it helpful you know, kind of musing aloud whether some, if you can draw a line between types and uh, different uh, sort of personality disorders, you know, sort of cluster B stuff, right? Now, so they might say that ones might, uh, you know, correlate with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, I would imagine, not OCD, but, you know, personality disorder. Two would be histrionic, actually. Uh, three would be Actually, that is uh, the one type that nobody really can peg, honestly. And people assume it's narcissism, but most don't in the teaching of it. Fours, borderline, fives, some sort of schizoid, you know, I'm not sure what that's called now because I don't have the new DSM in my head. But it's like um, social social introversion, you know, excess, yeah, schizoid would be kind of a very reserved, withdrawn, and that makes sense for five. Yeah, so six would be paranoid personality disorder. Seven would be would be narcissism. Uh, eight would be uh, it used to be called oppositional defiance. I don't know what it is now, or sociopathy maybe. I uh, or if you call it psycho, psycho psychopathy, I'm not sure. You know which one you like, which term you like, but that would be it for that. Nine uh, would uh, no, what was nine? Not dependent. Although I think sometimes you see it as as a dependent personality mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. disorder, but it would be more around uh, the whole merging. Thing. It would be issues around individuation. Um, but anyhow, the, I think it's dangerous to do because, I, I first of all, labels are dangerous uh, and limiting. Uh, and, and, but again, what, what, I'm, what I guess what I'm driving at is, 
you could be a three on the Enneagram, or let's say a two. Okay, so what? You, maybe it looks a little histrionic when it goes off the charts, but you could just be a narcissist who's a two. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So it's like you you, you got to be careful. Yeah, I think— I mean, I do think one of the attractions, I was talking to Jan about this earlier, and, and it kind of goes back to her, her, her story with the Enneagram. I do think, though, one of the things that attracts people to it versus a strict taking a big five inventory and saying, you know, I'm extroverted, I'm introverted, um, is, is how the Enneagram does talk about when you're functioning um, in a dysfun- – is it a dysfunctional way or an unhealthy way versus uh, a healthy well- way? Yeah, some people would say when you're in dis, like uh, integration uh, would be healthy disintegration. You know, so you're on a scale, and during the course of a day, you're you know it could be in an hour. You know, depending who you are, you moving from healthy to unhealthy. To so you're either moving toward integration or disintegration at any given moment. You know, right? Uh, it's very fluid. And then towards stress and security would be on the horizontal plane. You know, who, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where you are in in terms of those things. So. Yes, it's very. It's a very dynamic, fluid system. It's not at all static. And I think that's its unique contribution because you don't see that in the Myers Briggs. You don't see, you know, you don't see those types kind of described as healthy or unhealthy or stressed or security. And you don't really see that in the psychometric stuff in psychology with the Big Five. But I do think that is that diagnostic ability to kind of name things when you're looking good and healthy and kind of pointing and highlighting the shadow side of things when where Janet kind of described it as sin, but where we're kind of tempted in ways that are unique to our, our types. I, so yes, I agree with you. I don't think it's easy to kind of just map on personality disorders on top of the types. I, I would push back on that as well. But I, but to swing back to the other set, I do think the Enneagram's ability to, to kind of name what health and um, unhealth looks like for, for in, di- in various ways and the uniqueness of what those illnesses look like because we're all not we're not all not we're all sick but we're all not sick in the same way and the enneagram's helpful in kind of parsing all that out yeah i what i tell what people ask me about that because it's almost you know when i'm giving seminars invariably somebody who's a therapist in the room wants to you know has spotted this and wants to talk about the correlation between you know, type and, and pathology, personality disorders. And here's what I tell them. The Enneagram is for garden variety neurotics. It's, you know, it's just for normal neurotics. Which is almost all of us. Right, which is almost all of us. And for those people who are, you know, um, you know, are have diagnosable disorder or, or, or that are florid, you know, to the, in their, in a disorder, I just don't think it is equipped to be able to really wrestle with that might help them a little bit, but it requires a whole different level of intervention than the Enneagram can give them. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So, um, you, uh, I self identify as a five with four. Okay. Again, I, for those who are, are, are listening, uh, the fives are called the observers. Uh, they're the most analytical, detailed, well, analytical, I should say, number on the Enneagram. They're, they're, they're called the investigators, but I actually have migrated to the name the observer. I think observer is even better than investigator. That makes sense. Uh, I can see that. Uh, and I, um, they are amazing human beings. They are perceived as being aloof at times. Uh, they are the most emotionally distant number on the Enneagram, uh, typically. Um, But their powers of observation are stunning. And when you get a five or the four, what makes that number so powerful, and people have heard me say this before, is 
Uh, by the way, I think uh, our, so many musicians are fives with fours. Uh, so many of the great writers uh, and artists. Uh, people don't think of fives as artists. They think of them as, you know, actuaries or something. That's a stereotype. That's not a type. Uh, they actually, uh, George O'Keefe, people who have powers of observation, then that gets blended with that four creativity, one foot in the heart space, one foot in the, in the mind, you know, in the, into the head space. And my gosh, you got, you got a person who can kill you at two levels. <laughs> you, know, you can't escape them. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're just, you know, yeah. I mean, you get into their writing and you're like, well, gosh, I just thought, you know, I thought I could cover up my head and then they got my heart and I tried to get cover my heart and they got me in the head. You know, it's like Merton, right? It's poetry and you know, just intense logic. Yeah, and you were the one that hit me with that. Like, you had heard me speak at Telemachus, and at that point I hadn't come up with a number, and um, you heard me present, and you sat down next to me and said, I think I got it, um, five wing four. And, and and part of it was the way, I, and, and it's very common the way I speak. If anybody ever hears me speak, I kind of lead with ideas. Um, I lead with kind of analytical things. And so, you know, a lot of the nerds in the room, the analytical people are nodding along and and uh, taking notes. But I eventually always end, Jana knows I always do this, I always end with um, the heart. And, and mm-hmm. by the end of it, people often report crying or whatever. And so, yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's what you saw that 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 uh, that day. But I, I think that's part of the reason why I struggled initially to kind of find myself in the typology because the five four is such a different mix. They, they are often pitted against each other, and and so when I would read descriptions of fives, I'd like that's just not me. Like I don't, and it's probably what Josh is Graves is thinking when he he's like doesn't sound like Richard. Richard seems really in touch with his feelings. He's not just in his head. He doesn't seem reserved. He seems very outgoing. But Jan and I were having a conversation just this week. And she said, you know, if you really pay attention to your development, what did you say? Go back well, when you were 20. I said, I said, think back to when we were first getting uh, uh, together romantically and then when we got married. As a 20-year-old, to describe him would be many more things on the list of a five than I would describe him as now. Mm. Which I okay. thought was interesting and had him think about that. Yeah, so I think in college I was really in my head, kind of stood aloof. But realize that, again, going back to our virtue conversation earlier, kind of realize, though, that, that those tendencies are temptations and that I was going to have to be really intentional about moving towards people um, in intimate and vulnerable ways. And although my, so my, my normal mode would be to observe a social situation. Uh, and so I think now looking at myself, now I'm 50 now, that over 30 years I've done a lot of work to get out of my head and, and to connect with people. And so a lot of those descriptions of just kind of a straight five maybe doesn't seem to fit me um, if somebody's looking from the outside in because I seem so relational involved in my church. And But all of that to say is those social things that people observe about me are probably not natural. Like they were acquired intentional disciplines because I felt like that the way of Jesus was calling me into those practices. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we got we to gotta talk about that because I, I recently read one of your blog posts on experimental theology, which I love. It's a tremendous blog. You're a great writer. I love that you, uh, you have a... Uh, Yes, you're. You have that writing that both is a, evokes feeling and uh, stimulates uh, the intellect, 
and you're also irreverent and provocative, and I love all that <laughs> together in, in, in one part. A little bit like Johnny Cash, but we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Um, okay, so you do have an interest. Now, not all of our listeners are, would, would, would self-identify as, as Christians or people of faith. They, they do know if they've listened to any time that uh, I, I'm not uh, representative of a particular strain of, of that universe um, that, you know, uh, you know whatever. Um, the, the, what is it about the intersection of psychology, Christian faith, or spirituality in general— that excites you because in that blog post you talk about how exciting it is for you to finally in your teaching bring those things together well i think a lot of pastors and preachers and christian people you know have aspirations about the kind of person they want to be um and communities aspire to a certain kind of community they want to create um and i think people even of no faith persuasion at all would say, yeah, if Christians could live up to the aspirations they hold for themselves, and if their communities live up to the aspirations that they set for themselves, that they would be authentic and vulnerable, inclusive and loving, then I, I think Christians would have a much better reputation in the world. And, and so the trouble, though, is that Christians often kind of behave badly. We don't live into the things that we say we believe very often, and a lot of our communities are characterized more by dysfunction and inauthenticity. So I think I think anybody could tell a story of running into Christian people that seem hypocritical. So there's this kind of lack of self-knowledge, a disjoint between um, how we conceive of ourselves and the actual behavior on the ground. And I don't know if that's an educational problem anymore. I, I, in other words, what I'm trying to—I I talk to Christian audiences and I say, you know, we have all heard the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and how the religious people in the parable pass by this wounded man and this outsider ends up being helpful. So we all know the story. We've heard it since we were little. And, uh, and yet Christians often don't spontaneously love the way Jesus calls them to in that story. And so if it's not an educational problem, if everybody knows the right answer, then it's got to be something else. And to me, those answers are going to be found in, like, psychology and social psychology. Um, like like I, I, I told an audience last week, I go, we all know that sociopaths can get an A-plus in a theology class or an ethics class. So it's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. It's a psychological problem. And so to me focusing on the social psychology gets us down to kind of where things are broken in Christian communities and in our own lives. So it, it sounds like you're, you're wanting to um, awaken or illuminate this idea that when we say the word psychology, we're talking about science of the soul, of the psyche, right? And so there is this uh, important dimension, and it's sad that psychology has sort of uh, turned its back on that, uh, on the providence of that word, right? That it's a it's a, soul, it's a soul issue, isn't it? No, I agree. I think psychologists are—I are, don't know if you've been tracking with what's going on in the field the last 20 years or so, but there's been the rise of what's called positive psychology. Yes, I'm very familiar with it. Dan Seligman and those, that, those folks. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's their point, that psychology has tended to focus on the negative. That is, as we've talked about or just a little bit ago, right, the really, really neurotic and psychotic, all the dysfunction. And so psychologists throw in all of its— research uh, and scientific talent at taking people who are miserable and making them just okay, mm -hmm. you know, just getting them to a state of just getting by. 
But what what about taking normal people like you talked about, everyday neurotic people, and then thinking about the optimal life, flourishing mm-hmm. and happiness? And those psychologists realized there just wasn't a lot in the literature. And so they have had to go back to the great wisdom traditions to recover some basic ideas about what makes for human flourishing and meaning in life. And so I do think there is a growing um, intersection between top-level science with the spiritual and wisdom traditions from the past, finally kind of coming together in the positive psychology movement. Yes, and by the way, interestingly enough, uh, among Western Buddhist psychologists— uh, the Jack Cornfield, Tara Brack, those types who are really a little bit like the positive folks, but they obviously have a, a, an even more spiritual slant. And they would say, you know, let's start, let's not start with pathologizing or, or with what the presenting problem is. Let, let's actually look at what's right uh, about this person as, uh, as, a, as a place to start. And I think that's a very Christian idea, actually. And I, I wish churches started that way instead of with, you suck you know, God had to kill somebody. You suck so bad. And by the way, you want to join us for coffee and uh, for Wednesday night Bible study? I mean, that's not exactly great marketing or even good for the gospel. It doesn't sound like good news. No, it sure doesn't. Okay. So Jen, I have a question for you since you're in there. You are two on the Enneagram. You are a helper. You're in the feeling space. Your husband's a, a five. I have sometimes heard five say to me, I married a two because I wanted to outsource my feelings. <laughs> Uh, and then, and then, secondly, I wanted. I actually, the five was said to me one time, and because she she had so many contacts in her contact list, I didn't actually have to bring any relationships into the marriage. She brought them all for me. Okay, I'm gonna actually jump in on that. This is this is a this is a conversation. This is a class. This is a conversation that happens in the back car. We're driving to dinner with somebody. And I will say to Jana, do we know these people? She's like, yes, we know these people. Like, do we like these people? She's like, yes, we like these people. <laughs> so I have to I have to ask her questions about who I know and who I like. Because if I don't have her with me, I don't know who I like. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> Jana, can you st- – oh, my gosh, you're laughing like a two. So I'm tell so me – what? So, so tell me what – is this true? Is this what, what – Yes, I have. um, Well, back before we had uh, cell phones, I had a thousand phone numbers in my head. And Richard would just ask me earlier in our marriage what somebody's phone number was. And he just thought it was amazing. Of course, now I don't know anybody's phone number because they're all just in my contact list. But I've always been the one that made the relationships, the one that that had um, all the people in my life, the one that was always fostering a new friendship or uh, bringing somebody new over and... um, I don't. I don't recall Richard bringing people to me um, mm. in our relationship. I've. I've been the one who brought the people to us. I just recommend good books. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he also writes good books, and you know, it's just been kind of a book thing for him. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he was just. A, he just wanted somebody to observe who was so deep into the emotional space. Right. <laughs> right? However, he- I will say that um, he writes me beautiful poetry. And has for over 26 years of marriage, and his heart um, beats in a beautiful way that um, is is something that I think has been um, one of the reasons we've been able to connect so well. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, I'm looking at. Uh, this, I had a. Uh, do you do you know you know Andrew Root, don't you? Uh huh. Okay. Do. So I interviewed Andrew, who's also a five, also a college professor. 
uh, on the show and he was in his office and it was lined with books. There, not one shelf. Every wall was covered in books. Now, what's interesting, I think he's a five with six. You're a five with four. And I'm looking at your bookshelf that's behind you. And it's filled with icons and uh, statues of Mary and and candles. Is that the Buddha on the bottom or is that Jesus on the bottom of the lamb? I can't tell. Oh, that's the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Okay, Sacred Heart of Jesus. From here, it, it looks a little bit like a Buddha. Anyway, you've got all this... Uh, uh, you know, beautiful kind of Eastern Orthodox looking stuff happened on the back. There's um, that's that sort of mystic side of that five with four, you know, that kind of what's that? Well, tell me what that's about. I mean, you don't, that's not a five bookshelf usually. Not usually. No. And I think it's, it's again, a part of that emotional, that it's the, it's the wing four that made me, and there's a gap and you have to explain that. If you look at the Enneagram drawing, there's a bit of a gap between the five and the four. So I don't yeah. know what that means, but I don't know if that's a rare combination, but but one of the reasons Jan and I can connect is that even though I'm a five, I have a really big sentimental and romantic streak in me. And she's a theater teacher, and that's how we met. We met auditioning for a play together. And so we've been able to connect through uh, – she's a people person. I'm more an idea person. But what we share is aesthetics. Mm-hmm. We have a, both have a very yeah. strong aesthetic uh, thing. So – images and music and art is really important to both of us and it maybe hits us in different ways for 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 janet kind of maybe opens up her heart and for me it kind of opens up a view of the world but because we share aesthetics um we were able to bond even though we're really different on the top at the five two level do you think that's right yes yes Um, and our house is overrun with books, if it makes you feel any better, Ian. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is. But but what's fascinating to me uh, is this Therese of Lisieux thing, which we'll get back to because we've got a little bit of a mystic angle coming in here. You know, it's not like you're just uh, sitting around reading Kahneman or something. You're you're really, you know, into some uh, waters that are, are far more, uh, I, I, for lack of a better term, the contemplative stream, the, the mystical tradition of, of the Christian faith, which for a five is fascinating because you're of your love for data. But fives actually make, well, they make great Zen Buddhists, I'll tell you that, uh, because of their power in terms of de, de, detachment uh, uh, at times. But uh, what I, the, the question I had really, really uh, wanted to, to ask you was, um, how do the two of you work out? I mean, what is the dance between this five and two that, I mean, you're so different. I mean, it's like, and I meet fives and twos all that time. And and so what, why? I meet nines and ones who are married all the time. I mean, but is it like you're looking for someone to do for you, which you're, I mean, that maybe you either are too afraid to do, which is, you know, be living that heart space. And you actually need somebody who's going to elevate the thinking space instead of just living at that emotional level. What, what's happening there that, you know, that, that drew you to each other? Well, I, Richard is a tremendous relief to me. Um, he, he teaches me a lot. I love when he talks to me about, um, about ideas. I love, um, I love conversations with him are, are tremendously exciting to me and most of my conversations because of my um, being a two and people come to me the thing on the list where it says do people that you hardly know tell you their deepest darkest secrets do people often ask you for advice that that's a large part of my social life and um, Richard's 
it's fun to me to 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 think um, because he's not coming to me with some deep thing and needing me needing my help and and it's that part is really exciting for me. Um, it's one of my favorite things. Uh, in the morning, I say, "What are you teaching about today?" And so for the next thirty minutes, he'll tell me. He'll talk to me about ideas. Or I love sitting with him at the kitchen table. We've, we've got our coffee, and he's studying for something, and he has a spiritual insight, and he shares it with me, and and I see it happen right there, and I get to be a part of it. Mm, that's awesome. You know, as you're describing, there is what a good uh, listener does when they hear an artist which is you rent that person's vision for just a few minutes their way of seeing the world rich you i saw you go for the mic what 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 are your thoughts on why a five and a two get together well before i get to the five and two the other point earlier we were talking about um how how virtue or dysfunction might cut across the enneagram types um it's just something different and so the other thing that i would say that's different about the types is like iq Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Jan is often because she's a heart person and a, and a social person. I think she off twos get pegged as kind of not being intellectual. That's right. Um, and but Jan has a like a probably has a higher IQ than I do because I know it was tested when she's young and it's mm-hmm. really high. So I've never been tested because I don't want to compare numbers with her on IQ. <laughs> And because fives never want to be outed as being less intelligent than anybody. Right. So my point is one of the things that attracted me to Janet, yes, was her outgoing, social, her joy. And as somebody who's in my head a lot, I felt she pulled me out of myself into life. And so that was kind of my – what attracted me about her was that that joy that she had. And she's a lover, and, um, and she uh, – she's – into life and and people and so yes that drew me but you know i I dated a variety of people in my life and the the intellectual side of me that was always churning away i couldn't find a good partner who would who could listen to me and stay with me and and so instead of that becoming a private thing because i could never talk it i can i can tell Jana that the most complicated thing i'm thinking and she's like no i'm I'm with you like i'm hanging with you like i'm not losing you didn't lose me and there's just such a relief if you're a five to just have somebody who can kind of stay with you like that and that's just iq i think it's not her Mm -hmm. being a two per se but it's her being a really high iq two that she can track with any sort of you know analytical gymnastics i'm going through in my mind so yeah so that's another piece that's not really kind of in the types but but i do think we are attracted to minds too yes particularly particularly if you're a five you're going to want to have a high iq two that's that's yeah. what I come up with. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but this is important because I think what what happens with the enneagram is, and with all I'm sure typologies or not type you know but but personality typologies that people tend to stereotype versus type using types right so in, uh, so but maybe if we think of stereotype as a fixed overgeneralized belief about a particular group or a class of people. Um, you know, people say all twos in general are, you know, uh, highly emotional, not very intelligent. You know, fives are all Stephen Hawking. You know what I mean? These are stereo. These are dumb stereotypes, right? Because the fact of the matter is there are plenty of dumb fives. Oh, right? yeah, there are. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've been I've, listen, I've been living in academia for a long time and there are plenty of dumb fives. <laughs> 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 OK, 
Okay, so you just revealed something about the agreeableness of fives. But my point is, I know. Sorry, no, no, that was just a cheap joke. No, it was excellent. the the <laughs> the 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 thing I was going to say though is that uh, the one thing you can say about a dumb five though is that they're always observant. They may not be smart, but they're always observant. You, you know what I'm saying? So that makes sense. Yeah. So I think uh, to your point again, like. Um, in my experience, I love the Enneagram. It's wrong, but it's useful. I mean, it's like any other model. It's wrong, but it's but in this case, it's a useful, you know, inaccurate. It's truth. It's truish, and it's true enough to be yeah, useful. How's yes. that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think um, now to your question, uh, so you know that that only a five would notice that there was a bigger space between the five and the four on the Enneagram. Nobody else would even think to themselves, no. It would, and somebody's like psychometric, but that's not even about psycho. You're just looking at it and you go, why is that that way? Nobody's observant enough. Uh, right. The reason is, is, is uh, because fours with fives, fives with fours, what makes them so unusual and rare uh, is that they've got one foot in the heart space, one foot in that head space. It's, and so that, that, that reflects the distance between those two triads. That's the furthest points away on the Enneagram. And so that's the cool thing about that. And I, I, I'm a four with, with, a now I say in this part of my life, a five wing. And, um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for that. Okay. I got a couple other questions before we go. Sure. Uh, and, and, uh, this has been wonderful for, for me. And I, I want to ask, uh, Jana, I want, uh, for, for Richard, who's a five, you're a two. And we're going to, have to this is going to be a rapid fire round. Okay. Cause we're, we're pretty far into the show. What, what do you wish Richard, uh, knew and believed about himself. Wow. Um, I wish he knew how completely interpersonally delightful he is and would believe that people would really like being with him. Wow, that's beautiful. All right, now, Richard, back at, back at Jen. She's a two on the Enneagram. She's a, what, what do you wish she, she, she knew and believed about herself? I wish she would come to believe that her all her feelings... Um, are not liabilities or weaknesses, but they are her greatest strength, and they are what makes her beautiful. And sometimes I think she thinks her feelings are liabilities, but they are actually um, her great power in the world. Mm-hmm. I heard a, I've been reading a book uh, recently by a guy who's the chief investigator, what was the chief uh, hostage negotiating guy for the FBI. It's a fascinating little book, but in it he says, feelings are a form of thinking. And I just remember being arrested by it. Feelings are a form of thinking. And I thought, that's a guy who actually is aligned with the Enneagram, which talks about three centers of intelligence. Your feelings are a center of intelligence. So, yeah, you're right. They're, they're wonderful gifts. So they're a way of thinking that you don't tend to lean into, Richard. Right. So that's wonderful. All right, so here's a question for you. Five, uh, question for you, Richard, as a five. Thinking through the lens of the Enneagram, just maybe fill in this, this little question here. I'll finally love myself when? I think when I can trust people enough to be truly truly present and authentic with them. Mm-hmm. Like like I think I, res- I hold back a little bit. Um, I think that's a temptation of the fives. And so I think self-love for a five isn't much of a problem. But there's a part of me that feels like I haven't allowed myself to be loved well by others. Mm. Okay, and how about how about you, Jan? You're a two. Answer that question. I'll 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 finally love myself when. 
Does it have to be realistic? You just answer the question as you please. I'll finally love myself when I don't have to feel like I need to change myself in order to be wanted. Ooh, that's pretty cool. That's a thank you for both of you for your your yeah your transparency on that. That's really good insights into both fives and twos. Yeah. So now we're gonna have this long conversation on the way home. So thanks, Ian, <laughs> for for making our day. <laughs> Okay, let's throw another one at you then. All right. Every type has blind spots, people. And one of the things that the Enneagram is so great at is uh, outing your blind spots, right? And uh, I want to know, you guys can self-report or uh, let's report on each other. That's really fun. I want to screw your marriage up. Uh, Okay, so blind spots. Jana, what's a blind spot for fives based on your experience with with Richard? So we won't personalize it. Just in general, it's a blind spot. Um, perhaps a blind spot for a five would be that they give off facial expressions and um, physical cues that imply feelings, uh, but they claim they're not having them. <laughs> but they, their bodies and their faces are, are, are speaking loudly. Really? Can you give me an example? About... Just anyone, hypothetically? Yeah, just hypothetically. If you knew a five. I tell everybody that our, Jan and I have had more fights in our marriage over my facial expressions than anything else we've ever. Because, I no, I think that's true. Now, as I hear her say that, a flash of feeling will affect the face. And as any good psychologist knows, that, that that's true, right? Our faces betray emotions. But then when she'll say, you, you know, you felt X, Y, and Z when you looked that way, and I will deny it. And no, I didn't have any feelings about that. Um, but but she's like, no, there was, I saw your face. But I saw your face. And so we, so that, yeah, no, I think she nailed it. That's a good blind spot of mine, that I do have feelings in there, and I probably should, I should probably out them more. And, mm. and, uh, I, okay, I, oh, I wish we had more time because we could talk about how many days does it normally take you to think your way toward those feelings uh, versus having them spontaneously in the moment as they arise? You know, because fives can actually delay emotions, which is a two couldn't delay an emotion, you know, for five seconds or two seconds. I mean, a, I mean, a three could think for days before it actually they can uh, make touch with the feeling that they're mm, trying to get to after an experience. I think, you know... I think for me, and maybe this is because I'm a four, and so I'm a five that that has that can can I have, a, I have a pretty big emotional repertoire of words. Like I think I can see and name feelings. It's a sentimental part of me. I, I think for me, my the big problem of owning those is not so much that I, I don't recognize them, but I, I perceive them as weaknesses. So it's mm. not that I don't know what the feeling is; it's the fact that I had it. It represents a failure mm, because it, because it, you you overprivilege analysis and fact versus the the and rational ratiocination versus you know getting down into feeling. And I, no, I don't know if it's I put reason itself on a pedestal. Like I don't worship reason itself, but I, I privilege the fruits of that contemplation. So so my reason will lay out for me a theory of what a mature or a spiritual person should be like and so i've constructed a because i think that's one of the things that fives do they create these overarching paradigms or theories and so i've always 
since college, you know, been interested in the good life and philosophy. And so I, I have in my mind what, what I want to be like in a, in a way that's probably so elaborate worked out, it would be almost embarrassing to kind of, you know, it, mm. it'd be like, so I have an internal model that I've constructed about what I want to be and who I want to be. And when I can't be that person, I'll like in the feelings you know, if a feeling will betray that I should be, I should have not had a reaction, but I did. I want to deny that that I had that I faltered in that in that sense. Mm. So, so, so I perceive feelings sometimes as failures, not because they're feelings, but because um, I, bet, I betrayed an ideal, and so that it's that ideal that I'm holding out in front of myself intellectually that that um, I'm struggling to keep a hold of. Mm. Yeah, you know, I was uh, actually just to your point about wanting to connect. I I was in California at a workshop. I've been uh, taking courses with Helen Palmer because of a style of uh, teaching that she has that I I really connect to and I want to learn. And but one of the fives they interviewed on a panel said something beautiful. He said, you know, I just think back to all the people in my life that signaled they wanted to have a relationship with me that uh, I, I told myself, I, I, I'll get to it. But, and then he said, and half of them are gone now. And I, I thought, oh, wow. And he said it was so, so much heart. It really made the room, uh, brought the room to silence. Uh, so there's that, yeah, that desire, that need to connect. And yeah, that's the work of fives, isn't it, in part, large part. And, and, and marrying it too helps with that, if you can. Oh, yeah. Right, if you can, it helps, it helps remediate those weaknesses. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I, mean I think that's part of how a, a spouse helps us, uh, you know, work out our salvation. But you're not out of the way yet, Janet, because, Rich, <laughs> I want to know, what is the blind spot that, let's say, a, a, some twos in general uh, might want to be aware of? Like, what, what is it that twos uh, uh, don't see that they need to see? Okay, this is what Richard's saying about me, right? Yep. Okay. No, not about you twos in general, Janet. Based on oh, his. This is what twos. I'm saying. Okay. No, 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 so no, I got no, to no, say about you. you, and I get to say about me. Awesome. No, no, you don't get. No, no. Actually, not you. I want Richard to say it because if it's a blind spot, you right. can't see it. So I want to hear, uh, Richard. I want to hear what you think. It. What? 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 what a, what's the blind spot for twos? The blind spot of twos. We've talked a lot about this, um, and I, I think. I think the blind spot of twos is mistaking the affirmation they receive from other people as as the foundation for like their authentic self. I think mm-hmm. they they so want to make people happy and please other people that they can if they're successful in that, you know, and everybody's pleased and happy and they've cultivated this beautiful garden of relationships that they can find themselves in the middle of that garden um, out of touch with who they are. And so uh, so they can become so other-focused that they lose track of what they need and, and what fills them up. Um, so that's been my observation mm. about twos. So uh, we got to wrap up. I could go on for so long because this is such a, a rich conversation. Jan, I, I'm so glad you we're in the room i mean the way oh, it's thank like you. oh i know it's like getting a piece of chocolate cake and then someone you know walks in with some you know ready whip or something you know it's like <laughs> oh we get we get that on there too oh, that's nice yeah Woo! Nice. Well, i love typology so much it's blessed me a lot and i just wanted to be around so this is a double bonus for me too oh man well look the next time y'all are on here's i mean i got so much to talk. i want to talk about character the difference between character and personality i want to talk about 
the the fact that I think, and this is something I'm working on, and I, so this is priming you for our next conversation. That the point of, the, uh, of, of uh, uh, that the point of that the point of knowing the enneagram is not self improvement; it's about self transcendence. And this is this is such a big idea for me right now. And to me, that's the uh, I want to talk about narrative therapy and talking about each of these types actually as being narratives, not just uh, some kind of constellation of traits. Uh, and I, I'm so excited. I want to, uh, you know, maybe I need to fly out to California. I mean, to Texas, wherever it gets, just, you know, hang and talk about these Come things. Come on. For... We have good barbecue here too. <laughs> oh man. I know you do. So, uh, I want one piece very quickly, one, uh, transformational, uh, how do I want to ask this question? I want to ask this question in a highly kind of relational way to get at it sort of sideways. Um, <sighs> All right, what what stands in the way between you and the person you want to become and how are you working on it? I'll go first. Uh, what stands in the way of who I want to become is caring what people think about me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not fully know how much I did that until I came across the Enneagram. And I am working really, really hard to make uh, some changes in my life, um, how I approach my job and how I approach my family in um, thinking about what do I need and how can they participate in helping me rather than how are they experiencing me. Mm. And a tiny little example of that would be, I come home from the grocery store. I have a bunch of bags in the back of the car. Um, Maybe Richard is reading a book, which would not be odd. Um, Maybe um, my son is um, doing his homework, okay? They're both otherwise occupied. I would never, years ago, have said, hey, guys, could y'all help me bring these bags in? Because I don't want to bother them. I don't want to get in their way. And, And yet... That, that whole martyr thing, I'll be bringing the bags in, going, anybody and helping me, I can't even, what are they, you know. But I think now I say, and I was so shocked the first time I did it, how hard it was. Hey, guys, can y'all come help me bring the bags in? And you know what the sweetest thing of all? They jump up with, with happiness and run and help me. And mm. it's like I think I thought that they wouldn't, mm. that they would... Um, it's like I was almost um, diminishing their love for me by being afraid that they wouldn't come mm. and that I have to change myself in order for them to want to come. And I'm finding out that people want to come to me um, even in my need. And so I'm experiencing love in a new way. And oh. So I'm trying to notice things like that. God, that just warms my heart in, a, in the best way, not in that, not in a trite way. All right, Richard, what about you? I'm, I'm thinking about all those fives out there. What, what is it that uh, is standing uh, between you uh, and the person that you want to become or be, and how are you working on it? Well, like, like I mentioned earlier, I think I've been working on it a while. I think I, I realized back when I was in college that I, that I, observe, I observe relationships and I observe people more than I participate. And so I've been working really hard to participate in life rather than observe it and theorize about it because I think it gives you a false sense of control I think there's some control issues there if you have a, if you have a theory about how things are working it makes you feel more in control mm-hmm. and relationships can be a little bit unpredictable 
And so even though, I, but even though I have made attempts through like we've talked about, you mentioned a little way, um, but through practice, spiritual practices of trying to be more intentionally and intentional relational, that even then um, it's, it, I'm not opening myself up to risk and mutuality. So I would think the thing that I really, my next step is to really open myself to not just participating, but really deepening those relationships. Um, I think that's the big step. Wow. Well, guys, thank you so much. This has been rich, rich, rich. And um, I know that folks are, are, are going to be really um, filled with insights into the, the two styles or ways of being in the world that each of you represent. Blessings to both of you. And uh, thanks for so much of your time, and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Great. We'll see you soon. Okay, see ya. Until next time, my good friends, listen to me. In the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken.